Last time on Hauntings in the Piedmont. Someone will pick her up, take her to the address that was given, and by the time that they get there or knock on the door, she's gone. We travel to a bridge that's covered in graffiti and immersed in mystery. She's a haunted, she's a hitchhiker. Um, she will flag you down to, and you pick her up, you go to take her. Now we head about a half hour west to Winston-Salem, more specifically Old Salem, and a story that happened well before Winston and Salem merged. This is a ghost story that is based uh, on a factual event. And the story of a little man accidentally buried alive. And uh, although he was pulled out alive, he died soon thereafter. From a town which has largely gone unchanged since the 1700s, comes the tale that's traveled around the country. And we find it's not the only ghost story this historic community has to offer. I'll let you use this whatever Stephen King metaphor for the image that is in your mind, but something related to him, the identity of this unknown visitor to the tavern. I'm Michael Hennessy, and this is Hauntings in the Piedmont. All right, you good to go? Okay, real easy first. Do me a favor, say and spell your name for me. Give me your title and just give us a one or two sentence breakdown of why we're here today. Yes, my name's Eric Elliott. I'm the archivist at the Moravian Archives, which is an agency of the Moravian Church in the Southern Province. We had all the records that helped uh, design Old Salem, records of the Moravian Church that go back to 1752. Uh, we're here today to talk about uh, one of our three famous ghost stories in Salem. Uh, that's the story of the Little Red Man. Perfect. Before we completely dive into that, kind of set the scene for everybody, what it looks like here. It's obviously a very unique part of town and kind of how historic and preserved this area is. Uh, we've got a perfect afternoon to walk around Old Salem and Salem uh, was a town that started in 1766. The first folks came here in 1771 to live. Um, it was the third settlement built by the Moravians in Forsyth County. It was a planned place to be a church community owned by the church. Everybody who lived here had to be church members. The idea was that from here evangelism would spread, commerce would spread to help support the church and its work with missionaries around the world. Um, the Old Salem Resort, a historic preservation site was modeled after Williamsburg in the 30s and 40s and it wasn't until the 50s really that Old Salem got incorporated and started turning these buildings which had been here some of them since the late 1700s uh, and made a historic site that visitors could come see and learn about how the Moravians lived, uh, learn about the Moravians and their neighbors. Been a lot of work done at Old Salem lately about uh, something called Hidden Town which is the story of the uh, free and enslaved African-Americans that lived alongside the Moravians that helped build the area. So there's a lot to come see and do here, but mainly on an afternoon like this, it's just a pretty place. <laughs> the buildings, how would you describe the look out here? Um, some of the buildings, like the single brother's house I'm standing in front of, uh, are quite distinct. They're European, half-timbered construction. There's a transition a brick that's famous around here. Uh, there's a, uh, an architectural feature above many of the doors called the Moravian Hood that's simply a semicircular arch 
didn't have any particular history in Moravianism, but locally it became a thing that many of the churches around here have a similar hood. Um, but uh, the, the building uh, streetscape is a mixture of commercial buildings and residences. Uh, Salem, unlike a lot of the Moravian communities in Europe that were uh, focused on communal living, from the beginning almost in North Carolina, they started building individual family homes. So though we have a single brother's house on one side of the square and a single sister's on the other, uh, because in the early days they wanted to keep the guys and girls apart until they got married, um, uh, they, um, they have a mixture here on the street of, uh, of homes for families and for businesses. What would have been different in terms of the infrastructure here in the late 1700s compared to what's been done now maybe it's how the streets. street was very narrow and very wood and very um, it was dirt mud um, the the tavern which is only a two block walk south from here was at the far end of town in the late 1700s the purpose being was that the Moravians did not want their virtue and piety to be soiled by those who might get indulged too much in the tavern so um, there was an intentional sighting of that south of town um, the, it was a population of, of several hundred at the time in the area. The Salem town lots about 3,000 acres around this central part that's old Salem now. Basically goes down to Bypass 40 up to Reynolds High School, out to Winston-Salem State, and over to West Salem, a big square. That was the town of Salem back in the days, but most of it was farmland. You talked about the single brother's house. You talked about why it was created. Um, how did it function back then? How many men would have been in there at the time? Um, the single, the, there's a choir system by which the Moravians organized themselves. And by choir, um, I don't mean everybody singing. I mean they were in a, uh, a group of uh, folks organized by like needs and stages of life. There was a little boys choir, a little girls choir, a single girls choir, a single brothers choir. And then, although they didn't meet in the same building, the, the marrieds and the widows also had their different choirs. And it was a way for the church to reinforce and help people spiritually in their growth, to check in on them and their uh, spiritual needs. Uh, they worshiped together. Uh, they would sing in the morning. They would sing at night. They would sing most of the day on Sunday. They did a lot of singing in Moravian communities. Um, but they were here to, um, to be ready for the Lord. The original Moravian community was a much more um, millenarian, uh, waiting for the Lord to return community when it started in the early 18th century Europe. By the third generation, that had scaled back a bit, but they were still quite intent on sharing the Lord's word with uh, the unchurched in the area, mainly Native Americans, uh, indigenous peoples, and um, uh, enslaved Africans. From the outside, and we can't go inside, so feel free to right. talk about what it looks like inside as well. But from the outside, it's very distinct because it looks like two separate buildings, although it's one. That's right. And in fact, it is two separate buildings. The upper part was built in 1768. That was the initial single brother's house um, that got too small. They added in 1786. They finished this uh, second brick half of the building. Uh, for those who come here as tourists, they'll get to tour the brick half, that's where you learn about the different trades that the Moravian Single Brothers did. Uh, if you come here during the Christmas season, although perhaps not this year, keep your fingers crossed with COVID, but um, normally they have the candle tea service here, and so you'll get a, a bite of sugar cake um, 
and uh, a cup of Moravian coffee down in the kitchen area here. Um, so this, this area is well known by visitors to Winston-Salem uh, who've come here for the Moravian Christmas services. The half-timbered offices, uh, half-timbered part of the building are now offices for Old Salem. But this is the part that's open to the public. And when this is being built is when the story of the little man, that's right. little red man um, begins. Th this, this is a ghost story that is based uh, on a factual event. And um, I've given you something from my archive. Our archive has uh, 14,468 memoirs, which are uh, uh, spiritual autobiographies of the Moravians who came and worshiped here and other places in the, in the uh, Forsyth County area. And what we have is um, a story here of a fellow named Andreas Kremser, who was a single brother, who worked with his fellow brothers on trying to expand the initial single brother's house to this one here in 1786. And they were working on building a sub-basement. They were, had a basement floor, but they wanted to go a little bit deeper for extra storage for the brothers. In the process of building that sub-basement, they, uh, they would undercut a bank, that, a natural bank, and, and then let the bank fall over on top of itself. That's a little dicey because you have to know how much weight is on the bank, how stable the soil is. They made a misjudgment. Andreas Kremser was down digging in the trench, undercutting the bank, and it gave way. And the weight of the soil collapsed on him. He was only buried for a few minutes, broke some bones initially, but suffered more internal damage than was really apparent. And uh, although he was pulled out alive, he died soon thereafter uh, and is buried here in God's Acre up in Salem. Did he die in the building? I don't know where specifically he died. I do know that his spirit is supposed to have stayed here because what happened in the years after 1786 is that the brothers, every time they heard a noise down in that sub-basement area, and, and I have to tell you that Kremser in his day job was a shoemaker. And so every time they heard a tapping, ah, that's Brother Kremser. And that every time a little noise, and, and there were generations of young men that stayed here from the 1786 up to the early 1820s when this building was no longer used as a single brother's place. A few years pass by and it becomes a home for uh, widows uh, in the community. And um, there's a tale then that a little girl went to visit her grandmother staying at this home. And in the process of visiting her, she comes and tells her grandmother, 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 there's a little man with a red cap and he's begging me to come to, to, come to see him. Well. Nobody believed her. They went outside, they didn't see anything. But then somebody put two and two together. Kremser had a little red cap, supposedly, when he was um, buried by this uh, fall of this uh, excavation work. And they said, ah, that's Kremser. The little red man is actually the man who's a little fella with a red cap. But in the shorthand of this little girl's telling, it was a little red man, a man who, a little man of stature with a red cap, begging her to come play. Um, off and on, after then, the, the, the women here would tell stories about that little red man every time they heard a noise. Now the story goes that the instances of hearing this little red man stopped about the same time they put electricity in the sub-basement. So maybe the shadows on the wall coupled with the noise makes that ghost a little more visible than he might be otherwise. What year was that? That was in the early aughts of the 1900s. So. What other stories did people have regarding the little red man here? There's um, a couple of other ghost stories. Our, our um, uh, 
uh, longtime uh, employee at the archives and, and uh, Richard Starbuck just passed away. And Richard wrote a wonderful little collection of stories, gathering some, some earlier tales from Adelaide Fries, our first archivist, who wrote about the little red man, put them together in the book, talking about uh, the landscape of Salem uh, in terms of um, resting places. We have five different uh, graveyards and cemeteries in the Salem area. Uh, but the story of the little red man and two other ghost stories that uh, came about. One is uh, an apocryphal tall tale, for to be sure, because it involves somebody from Texas. So, of course, it's got to be a tall tale. Um, but it's the story of um, uh, a, the tavern keeper told somebody who told Adelaide Freeze, and always a twice and thrice told tale is got to be believable, um, and that there was a fellow who was uh, tired, arrived at the tavern one night, unnamed year, unnamed season, but in his exhaustion uh, was clearly too ill to be by himself. They stayed with him briefly for the night and during the night he died. They checked his belongings, he had no identification, um, and he was buried in the stranger's graveyard, the southern part of the Salem community. Wasn't long after that, however, that the, the help staff around the tavern got very anxious because they were saying something is making a noise, something with the capital S. Something is in the hall. And one night, an, uh, an agitated a servant came to the tavern keeper and said, something is here. He wants to talk to you. So the tavern keeper goes out and lo and behold, something, I'll let you use this whatever Stephen King metaphor for the image that is in your mind, but something relayed to him the identity of this unknown visitor to the tavern that this gave him his name and said, he has a brother in Texas, would you please send his saddlebags to Texas? The tavern keeper wrote a note. Several weeks later, they received a note back and lo and behold, there was a fellow in Texas. They sent the belongings to Texas and mysteriously something stopped showing up at the tavern. That's the end of the tale. What about the third? The third one is, uh, is a, a tragedy uh, around the first traffic death in Salem. Um, you might think that might be with a, um, a wagon or with an early automobile. It actually was with a streetcar in the early aughts. There was a streetcar that ran right through downtown Main Street here in front of Salem Square, turned at 4th Street, ran to the very end of um, 4th Street uh, in West End, and that was one of the first streetcars in the country in the early aughts. There was um, a little seven-year-old kid named D.H., little D.H., or David, um, who loved, as all seven-year-olds do, to go sledding. And on a winter morning, um, he came down Bank Street in the early aughts, just at the time that the streetcar was coming through, and the streetcar hit him. Now, the tragedy of that is that the guy who was running the streetcar was a personal friend of D.H. and his family, and so D.H. was conscious when he was hit, and the streetcar conductor, um, Ebert came off and said, uh, I'm so, so sorry, so, so sorry. He says, I know you didn't mean to do it, but he died. And the spot where he died, the corner of the intersection of Main Street and Bank, is right next to the steepest part of uh, a street in Salem. Uh, it's clear today why it uh, would be a, a delight for sledders, and it's, just, it's kind of hazardous to walk down in the wintertime. Uh, but that's, the cold, that's called the cold spot in Salem. It might be a cold spot anyway because it's on the north side of a building that's very tall and very shadowed. But because of what happened there, people identify the coldness they feel on a winter day 
with that little boy and his story of his passing. Three stories, three different time periods. Do you think when this stuff was happening, you kind of touched upon it earlier, that there may have been a reluctancy to kind of embrace these happenings because as you put it, the Moravians only believe in one ghost and that's the Holy Ghost? Well, uh, Moravians have always been uh, open to hospitality for non-Moravians. They built, when they first opened the, the, their uh, trading village of Bethabra, um, very popular because for 50 miles around, it was the one place you could get a beer, you could get your horseshoe, you could, it was meant to welcome uh, strangers uh, to trade and have commerce with them. So they're very open to things that would be of interest to strangers. And then although uh, of the official position of the Moravian Church about ghosts is the only ghost that's real is the Holy Ghost, um, they do appreciate a good story. And they know a good story helps folks appreciate and remember a place. So next time you're here in Salem and you walk by the single brother's house, if you hear something, you heard it here first. From haunted parks, out of the floor comes what I can only describe as a mist. It comes out straight. It reminded me of the old I Dream of Genie. It comes out straight, but then what happened next is probably the freakiest thing I've ever seen. It billows out, and it appears to have two arms. To hotels. More recently, now that the building has sat empty for, for, for a few months, and we've been open um, since July, had a few people coming and going, and the energies returning back just last night. Um, one of the front desk clerks, I get a call at, the, at home and asking me, you know, all these strange questions. I'm like, why are you asking this for? Bridges and towns. Him and his buddy seen her sitting on the side of the road down here um, by the new underpass. And when they kind of came back and, and stopped, she just looked it's very, as they put it, just horrifying. And so they took off. They didn't even allow her to, to get into the vehicle and, and go with them. But those aren't the only spooky stories from the Piedmont and North Carolina. Grounds where the devils thought to pace to a cemetery where the victims of a Christmas family tragedy are buried. Halloween may only come once a year, but we plan to periodically post more podcasts. Until next time, I'm Michael Hennessy, and this is Hauntings in the Piedmont. If you're looking for something to listen to in the meantime, and you're interested in the story of that Christmas family tragedy, check out Fox 8's Chad Tucker's podcast titled Deadly Secrets, The Lawson Family Murder. And if you like the podcast, rate it, comment on it, tell a friend, get the word out. All Things in the Piedmont is written in and reported on by me, Michael Hennessy. Our editor is Chris Weaver. <laughs>